The information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available are for general informational purposes only. Welcome to Rights Here, Rights Now, the podcast about disability, advocacy, and activism. I'm your advocate host, Ren Fazuski. And I'm your advocate host, Virginia Ferris. Every two weeks, we dig into relevant issues, current events, and avenues for self-advocacy. Because someone has to. And it might as well be us. This podcast is produced by the Disability Law Center of Virginia, the Commonwealth's Protection and Advocacy Agency for Disability Rights. Find out more at dlcv.org. So today is actually going to be kind of a special episode. Um, This is going to actually be first of a two-parter, just because we had so much to talk about with this particular guest. Yes, uh, today uh, we had the privilege, honestly, to speak with the fantastic Ryan Mason, who is uh, Ms. Wheelchair Virginia, uh, the reigning Ms. Wheelchair Virginia, uh, 2020 to present, I believe, or what, 2019 to present? 2019 to present. 2019 to present. So she got to continue her reign for an extra year. Yeah, so if you want to hear about that, her tips for self-advocacy and uh, her experiences working in healthcare as a person with a disability, stay tuned for that. But before we jump in, let's check out disability in the news. Earlier this year, we shared that President Biden was proposing a $400 billion investment in Medicaid, home, and community-based services. But now Congress is considering less than half of that amount. In September, new legislation came from the U.S. House of Representatives Energy and Commerce Committee, stating that they would allot only $190 billion the home and community-based services. There are still opportunities for additional funding to be allocated before it's voted on by the full house, says Nicole Jarlett, Senior Director of Public Policy at the UP. Advocates need to work hard to push lawmakers to add the additional funding. Nearly 1 million people are waiting for services such as respite care, residential supports, supported employment, and other services that are paid for by Medicaid workers. Without the full $400 billion funding, these people will continue to wait without the services they need. All right. Thank you again, Ryan, for joining us today. We are very excited to have you on the show. Thank you guys for having me. It's so great to be here. It is probably the first time we've had what I would think is a literal celebrity on our show. So it's a a first for us. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with Miss Wiltier of Virginia and a little bit about that experience? Absolutely. Um, so about now it's going to be 
almost two years ago, um, it was fall of 2019. Um, I had never heard of the Miss Wheelchair Virginia or Miss Wheelchair America pageant, had no idea it existed, um, had actually worked with a photographer who shoots for Miss Wheelchair Virginia and the Miss America pageants all in this area. Had no idea that he did that on the side and he reached out to me and I was like, hey, by the way, there's this pageant going on. Um, Miss Wheelchair Virginia, you should, it's in your home, it's in Roanoke you should go out for it. And I said, I'm sorry. Um, I'm looking down at myself and I'm like, I'm covered in tattoos. Half my head is shaved. Um, every other word is a expletive on my Instagram. Um, I'm sorry. What about this says pageant to you? <laughs> and he was <laughs> laughing at me and he's like, no, 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 don't worry. Like it's not a beauty pageant. It's an advocacy based pageant. It's all about public speaking abilities and disability advocacy. Like you should just, just go out for it. And at this time in my life, I had just separated from my partners of six years. I had moved back in with my parents at the age of 27. Like I was basically at my rock bottom of, I don't know what to do with myself. And um, sure, why not a pageant? Let's, let's do something completely off the wall. So I signed up on a Monday and I get called that day by a friend of mine in the area who said, Hey, by the way, the Miss Military of Virginia pageant's coming through and needs judges. Can you sign up? I said, well, I didn't know anything about pageants. The pageant thing, title said Miss Wheelchair Virginia 2020. This is 2019. I thought I was signing up for next year's. So they call uh, me. Okay. <laughs> they call me to judge. And I said, um, I could probably do that, but I don't know if it'll ruin my chances of competing next year. And they said, well, let me check with the director. Give me a second. So he checks with the director and um, the director, then 30 seconds later, I get a panicked phone call. Um, at, this is Monday. The pageant date is Saturday. She said, no, this is for this week you're competing for. I said, wait a, wait a minute. I thought I had a year to prepare for this, not seven days. She goes, no, it's in seven days. I said, well, okay, do you need more judges or do you need more people to compete? She says, we need more people to compete. I said, well, if you think I can throw together a pageant in seven days after never doing this in my entire life and most of these girls have been preparing for a year, sure, I'll do it. But if like, if you don't think it's possible, then uh, I won't bother. She goes, just, just do it. You know, what do you have to lose? I said, all right, sure. Um, and then I won. So <laughs> it was uh, definitely the most unexpected thing that has happened to me in a very long time or ever. Um, and I think I blacked out when they called my name. <laughs> so. Well, apparently one of your secret talents is uh, competing in pageants within a week long time frame. So I know you find that out something new about yourself every day. <laughs> it, it's not a skill that has to come up a lot. It just has to come up once or twice. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, Ms. Wheelchair Virginia, it, it's not a pageant, but it, it, you know, like you said, uh, this photographer that you were working with was working both with Ms. Wheelchair Virginia, but was also working with, like, Ms. America. And I think just, like, based on the title alone, it's going to get compared to other programs and pageants that are traditionally able-bodied. Um, what makes... Miss Wheelchair Virginia different. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the second that anybody sees, you know, the crown and sash, they're just like, okay, so um, 
did you have to put on a bikini? Did you have to wear an evening gown? Like, what was your talent? And I'm like, no, 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 no. You see, what makes this Wheelchair Virginia competition different is um, there is no talent portion. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> there's no um, bikini portion because I think I would have quit on the spot if they were going to get me to do that. Um, it is an advocacy-based pageant where you um, develop a platform very similar to the Miss America um, genre of pageants. Um, and you develop this, this uh, platform that you base your advocacy work on for your year of your reign. Um, and we were judged for Miss Virginia. We were judged on um, an interview panel. We were also judged on the platform that we had to develop and um, a speech surrounding that. Um, an interview panel on stage and off stage. And then um, we had to develop this giant poster basically that just encompassed all that we were as a human. And so I was just like, I, I remember staying up all night just with pictures and just glitter and this ridiculous collage that was massive of just everything and every human that I loved in this world. <laughs> Because I was like, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. So I'm going all out, going all out with this. <laughs> so that's pretty much the difference. Um, we spend our reign similarly to the Miss America pageants. We um, go through your year of reign, um, traveling throughout your home state, uh, speaking on both your platform and just disability advocacy as a whole. Um, I got to travel all over the state and speak to all kinds of awesome people like you guys and meet all kinds of new friends. And it's been pretty incredible. It's been an awesome experience. Can you tell us a little bit about that platform that you came up with? Sure. So I, um, one of the only, you know, good things that came out of COVID for me was I got to be Miss Wheelchair of Virginia for two years straight. So I got to develop two platforms. Um, so my first platform, my first year, um, I was very new to the world of disability advocacy and the disability community as a whole. Um, I had only really been involved for maybe a year and a half, had only been in a chair for about as long. Um, and so there was also in the back of my head, this kind of like, how did they choose me? I'm so new to this. How am I going to represent the disabled community? And so when it came to developing that first platform, um, I had just gone through transitioning to a wheelchair for the first time from forearm crutches. I had just gone through losing my dream job of a ER trauma nurse because of my disability at the exact same time, um, had gone then had gone through um, you know, my marriage ending because of, for a lot of it, what I was going through both physically and mentally took a huge impact on my mental health. And as someone who had prided herself as not having a lot of mental health issues growing up, it was, it was a lot. It was a, I mean, a total mental break, honestly. And I learned very quickly that there were little to no uh, mental health resources directly targeted to humans with disabilities going through mental health struggles because of their disability. Um, so that first year, I very much focused on mental health care for those with disabilities. Um, and so I'm, I'm going through this. And at the time, I'm working as a case manager in a hospital. So um, in that position, if there had been mental health resources in my area, specifically for people with disabilities, I would have been the one giving them to my patients. So I knew they didn't exist. Um, and so that is what I advocated for my very first year 
And um, it was a great platform and I learned so much about it. But as I am doing this in my own life, I, um, because I'm a registered nurse and I had taken a step away from the bedside to get used to living in a wheelchair and used to rely on that for my mobility. Um, but I, while working in the hospital away from the bedside said, why can't I work bedside for my wheelchair? And when COVID hit, they said, we don't, we don't see why not. So I helped out on the floor as a CNA, um, just wherever they needed help, um, from my wheelchair. And in that process, I kind of, it dawned on me, why have I never seen more disabled bodies working in the field of healthcare? Why have I never had a nurse or a doctor in a wheelchair? Why have I never had a deaf or blind or, you know, any type of disability in my um, lifespan as a career patient? Um, thought it was kind of, you know, interesting. And so I started focusing more on that and started developing what has become my main platform um, over the past two years, which is just advocating for current and future healthcare workers in um, uh, disabled healthcare workers, uh, whether it's, you know, people in school that are trying to get into nursing that are in a wheelchair, blind, deaf, limb disparity, whatever it might be, um, or just uh, people who like myself, you know, kind of came into their mobility um, disability later in life um, mm -hmm. while still working in healthcare and being told, oh no, suddenly as if all of my nursing knowledge was stored in my legs, no, you cannot not yeah. nurse like this. Um, and so took that on as my main platform and as, and I'm now working at the bedside as a registered nurse, um, and still continuing to get to, get to advocate for other, uh, disabled healthcare workers. So, yeah, that's, I, you know, I think that's actually incredible because thinking about, we talk a lot about representation in all, you know, different areas of our society. And when we talk about like representation in healthcare settings, we often, we tend to focus on like race and we focus on gender and the same is off is also true for folks with disabilities and having that perspective is so important, particularly in that field. Um, because, you know, you're coming with this breadth of experience that uh, other healthcare workers don't have and may not think about first. Um, yeah, I, that's, I love that. I'm all for it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It turned into something kind of interesting for me that I, 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 so I've been in healthcare since I was 16. So, um, I started as an EMT right off the bat and I just, I never left. Um, so it's been almost 13 years and during my healthcare career, it's been fascinating to watch just the field change. Um, you know, when I first started, it was, and it still is, there's very much the stigma of your doctor or your nurse or whatever your healthcare provider is at that time. They're not we're not seen as people, we're seen as just the doctor or the nurse. Um, so because I roll in there in this giant wheelchair, you know, there is a part of my personal life and a part of me as a human that I cannot hide. This is something about me that is very obvious. And it's very, you know, this is the first thing they see when they walk in, when I roll into the room and it doesn't help that my wheelchair is rainbow colored and lights up, but <laughs> still, um, it's this huge part of me that I don't get to hide. And so I almost had to change the way I approached my own career because instead of just being kind of this blank canvas, you know, resembling the white coated nurses of yonder year, um, I didn't look like that. I, you know, 
am covered in tattoos and do tend to wear really bright colors and have all these rainbows on my wheels. And I, it kind of became this, okay, I don't get to hide who I am as a person. So I kind of have to be very okay with who I am as a person in order to continue to be your healthcare provider, because there's no way you can't see these things about me. And so then it became not only my disability, but also, okay, my sexuality was something that I no longer wanted to have to hide at the bedside. And so I stopped, I have had a rainbow pin attached to my badge since I was an EMT at 17. Um, and it just, I never stopped. And I think that because of that and because of my personal experience growing up, basically living in the hospitals, um, I bring something kind of interesting to the healthcare field. And that's what's been so cool about getting to be Miss Wheelchair Virginia is I get to go around and I got to talk to so many new med students and doctors and physical therapists and kind of remind them that Yes, healthcare for us is just a job. Yes, the hospital is just, you know, that's our office. That's where we are every single day of our life. It's totally normal for us. But for our patients, this is very likely the worst day of their lives. And it's something that healthcare workers often forget the emotional and mental trauma that is going through the healthcare system, especially if you're not someone who was born with a healthcare disparity or disability. Um, so, yeah, it's been. It's been a, it's been an exciting journey these past two years. That's for sure. <laughs> you, you know, you, you have talked about sort of throughout your life being really heavily involved with like having to go to doctor's appointments all the time and be in the hospital all of the time. And I think that that's, you know, it, it is a fairly common experience for somebody to be like, to become disabled through chronic illness. Um, and a big part of that experience for a lot of people are going to the doctor and not necessarily having their symptoms taken seriously, especially if it's not something super vis visible. Um, do you have tips for people going through this process and self-advocating, especially with medical professionals? Absolutely. Um, I have run into this so much over the years. I'm getting, to, I'm being diagnosed with a disability that you know, at the time, at least back when I was diagnosed was fairly rare, um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And most of my doctors remembered it from a little square in the corner of a textbook in med school. And that was about all they'd ever run into with it. They'd never treated a patient and most of them couldn't pronounce it. So that was always good. Um, so something that I learned later in my uh, dis disabled life would be that you are not, you don't have to take that from your healthcare providers. You are allowed to fire your healthcare providers, um, which is something that a lot of people are afraid to do. You know, if, if uh, <laughs> Hannah's like, no, oh, not me. <laughs> there's a healthcare provider, you know, that is gaslighting you like that. I'm not taking your symptoms seriously. I mean, there's a, there's a very, there's, there is a line and that I dealt with with a lot of patients where it's not as much, okay, this patient, this doctor isn't giving me the drugs that I want. I'm going to go find a new one. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, that's doctor shopping and polypharmacy and will look bad on your record. <laughs> but if you are trying to explain your symptoms to a doctor and they're like, oh no, it's all in your head. A lot of times with women, we get this a lot Mm -hmm. Oh no, it's anxiety. Oh no, you're just too stressed. You need to sleep more. You need to lose weight. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
that's fine. But it, you know, I'll I'll test a doctor for a few few tries with that. But if that's what you're coming at me for immediately, we're mm, we're probably not going to mesh, and that's fine. You know, you cannot hope to mesh and get along with well and work well with every healthcare provider that you try out, and they know that too, and that's also fine. You are not you do not have to stay with your doctor just because they're your doctor and they've been seeing you since you were born. Absolutely not. Um, And that is something that I ran into and have made mistakes with in the past because growing up in Southwestern Virginia, there just weren't a lot of doctors. There just weren't a lot of people who knew what my disability was and knew how to treat me. And so I, I, and just me as a human being a total people pleaser, um, had the hardest time with this. Like it was like, no, but they're my doctor. Like they know they know, and I'm a nurse and I know better. It doesn't, uh, no, you do not have to put up with that at all. Um, and don't, it's generally more toxic in the long run. And that's how we run into people, you know, living their lives with these chronic illnesses. They had no idea that they had for 10 plus years and were never diagnosed with because they just kept getting told over and over is anxiety. When I was, um, I was either a freshman or sophomore in high school. Um, I remember I woke up one morning, could not get out of bed, just could not move my legs, could not stand, could not put weight on my legs, tried, immediately hit the floor, had no idea what was going on. Um, now, because hindsight's 2020, I had slept with both hips dislocated. And so all the nerves were asleep and dead and were not working. And my hips were not going back in their sockets like they should. But it was the first time this had ever happened. Had no idea. I went to a doctor and uh, they sent me to an ortho specialist who said, oh, all this is, is a ligament that's just slipping over um, a joint on your hip. That's all it is. You're fine. Yeah. No, both of my hips were dislocating every time I walked, but because that is not a normal, a normal diagnosis, the doctor was like, no, no, it's fine. So I went a good 10 years of my life thinking, what are you talking about? My, this is totally normal. What my hips are doing. It's because I was a dancer. And so I finally had a doctor friend. It's like, right. Literally your hips are dislocating every time you take a step. But because a physician had told me that that is not what it was. It was so ingrained in my brain. I'm like, no, no, I'm fine. What are you talking about? I could have very possibly, um, no, I would not be in this wheelchair as early as I ended up in one. It, had I known how to take care of my hips, had I known what was going on with them. And, and that's just, that's a risk that we take. You know, we hear a diagnosis or we hear an answer from a physician and we say, well, that's the end all be all, that's it. And that's mm-hmm. just not true. Physicians and healthcare workers are human too. If you don't feel comfortable with the diagnosis, get a second opinion. There's nothing wrong with that. And many physicians, if they're worth their salt with any means, would encourage you to do so. You're not going to hurt anyone's feelings. Um, there is a very, you know, ingrained Southern girl. No, no, no. I don't, I trust you. Oh no. Everything that you say is fine. That is very hard to overcome, but you, you have to look out for yourself and for your own well-being. And so I think that is the biggest lesson I taught myself and I had to learn the hard way in self-advocacy is, you know, if something feels wrong or something feels like you have a question about it or want a second opinion, ask for it. Don't just sit there and think they know more than me because they're my healthcare provider. Ask for that second opinion. Ask for someone else to take a look at you. You're only going to help yourself and you're not hurting anyone's feelings. 
And I think what you said in terms of that it shouldn't be hurting their feelings, if it does hurt their feelings, that's actually a red flag. And that's a sign you really should get that second opinion. Yes. Mm-hmm. So much. <laughs> oh boy, as I'm just over here taking furious notes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, you've talked a little bit about, you know, even though Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is something that people are born with, like, you know, it presents itself a little bit more, you know, when, when folks are teenagers, young adults, um, and sounds like that's been your experience, especially, you know, only having needed to use a wheelchair for, you know, a relatively short amount of time in your life. Um, Having gone through the world as, you know, an able-bodied passing person and a person with a visible disability, how has your perspective changed during that transition? Oh, that was such a fascinating, like, time in my life when I realized that I got to see both sides of this world, um, especially working in healthcare, um, going and seeing how differently my coworkers treated me. Um, as someone with a visible disability versus not, um, that was just very interesting. Like I said, I went through a a time period where it was almost as if all of my nursing knowledge was stored in my legs. Um, so I took a job once I started using a wheelchair, um, about three years ago, I took a job away from the bedside to learn how to, you know, get used to it as a case manager. And in that role, I was seeing patients, but I wasn't hands-on with my patients. I was getting them set up with nursing homes, medical equipment, things like that, whatever they would need at discharge from hospital. And so I'm going around. And at this point in my life, I, you know, I was a very experienced trauma nurse, um, had worked, you know, years in emergency services and the field had seen quite a bit in my time. And when people would hear that at my new hospital, they're like, they just assumed that, oh no, she's, she's never worked the field. She's never worked as a bedside nurse. She's just a case manager. She's in a wheelchair. And so when I would pipe up something about, yeah, pipe up something about my experience as a trauma nurse, they're like, I'm sorry, you did what? I said, yeah, yeah. Uh, 13 years of it. Thank you. I, um, I know what I'm doing. This is not, this is not a new thing for me. And they were just so caught off guard and they were just like, oh my gosh, there's no way that this, this person could possibly be a nurse and also be in a wheelchair. I'm like, do you know how many of your healthcare providers have disabilities that you just can't see? Like, (laughs) this is just the very obvious elephant in the room. And so that was fascinating for me. Um, Also the way that the public treated me um, was an interesting thing for me just because I had always been able to kind of float in that in-between world of, yes, I walk with a cane, but I could kind of hide it. Oh, like if you don't notice my limp, I don't look that disabled, um, kind of lived in this almost, you know, I had, it was privilege. It was a privilege that I could hide my disability if I wanted to and needed to. Um, and when I got to a point where I couldn't, I had to face that head on and deal with a lot of the mental health struggles that came with not accepting that I had a progressive disability, not accepting and I self-identifying as a disabled woman for many years of my life. Um, I remember that I had, you know, you have your elevator spiel that you use for, you know, anything people ask you and people would always um, 
ask about, I used to wear ring splints on my fingers and I'd be like, oh, what's that about? And I'm like, oh, I have this disability. It's just this, uh, this joint thing. They say I'll be in a wheelchair by the time I'm 20, but that's about it. I'm fine. And like, that's what I would say. That was how I summed up my disability. Not that it was this big thing for me. That was it. Um, and so when I kind of did have to face that and to, did realize just how differently the world was going to treat me, suddenly I wasn't this you know, I'm, I'm five, nine. I tend to wear very eccentric colors. I loved wearing like six inch heels and being like six foot four. When I walked into a bar, favorite thing, uh, had my head buzzed for most of my life. Like if I walked into a room, it was going to make a statement. Loved that. Um, and suddenly all the heads are turning when I walk into a room again, but it is not because, oh, who is this Amazon person walking through the room? It's, oh, who is this cripple chick that just rolled in? Oh, I don't know about this. And so it was a very, suddenly the world is looking to me at just these eyes of pity. And this person is not able to do anything. She's just in a wheelchair and okay, we're just going to write her off and talk to me like I'm a child. Um, talk to me as if I have no life experience, as if, you know, I'm just a wheelchair. And it was it was hard. It was really hard at first because it was just kind of like, well, this is completely different from what my life has been like for the first 26 years. Um, how am I going to deal with that? And so I really turned heavily to Chronically Rye and to my Instagram and my platform. And that's when I just started sharing my life and what I was going through and what it felt like, and, you know, what it was like that first time being back in a hospital, uh, in a white coat, working as a nurse, but not getting to touch patients. What it was like the first time that my patient questioned my ability, ability to nurse because of my disability. Um, having to have these personal conversations about my body and the way it works with strangers at least 87 times a day. You know, something that I totally took for granted living in that kind of in-between world. And it was insanely difficult, but insanely eye-opening. And that was what I started to bond more with my disabled community and realize that there are so many of us who go through this on a day-to-day -day basis. And a lot of us don't even realize it because we've just lived this world for so long and don't realize if it does take a toll on our mental health, because that's just, that's life. And that discussing how my body works with strangers is just something that I will deal with my entire life. And luckily I don't mind educating strangers on the street, but it does get old and it's hard. And so having a place like my Instagram, like my social media to talk to other disabled people and kind of vent about, oh my gosh, you'll never guess what I went through today. Whereas the, my disabled following is like, oh yeah, I do that like four times a week. My able body following is like, I'm sorry, they asked you what next to the bread aisle in the grocery store? They asked you if your vagina worked in public? I'm like, dude, on the daily. <laughs> and so it's this like, it sucked that I had to go through this and everything, but it's been an awesome point of getting to educate a lot of the able-bodied humans in my life and in my following that, yeah, no, this is a real thing. And yes, it is messed up. And please stop asking us if our genitals work in Walmart. Thank you. <laughs> I think that's, a, I think that's something that we should all in all walks of life, um, try to practice. I, I think that, you know, like you said, I, I find like there's a two ends of the spectrum where you either are, you know, folks, particularly with visible disabilities, but are suddenly become children again, mm -hmm. or like the fact that like you're able to 
have a job is an inspiration, right? The fact that you're able to like do basic human things, they're like, oh, what an inspiration that we all can look up to. And it's like, I mean, I do want to be like, I am, I am an inspiration, but like, so like, perhaps I shouldn't be winning a medal for the basic stuff I would do all the time, maybe. Oh, being out of the grocery store constantly, just like, oh, you're, uh, you're so inspirational for being here and buying bread. And I'm like, no, no, no. And then well, the flip side of that, when people would <laughs> tell me at work, when I first started working bedside in a chair, they're like, it's so inspirational to see you here. And I'm sort of like, thank you. Cause this is really hard. Having done it both ways, this is hard. You can, I can inspire you from this position. I'm okay with that. Meeting at Walmart, not so much. <laughs> So um, for any of our listeners or, you know, a podcast co-hosts that are navigating that transition, uh, how would you uh, advise people on both becoming like their best self-advocate selves, but also tapping into the self-advocacy communities? Um, Definitely. Uh, Community has been the biggest thing for me. Um, I had absolutely no, no idea what I was doing, trying to navigate this, you know, world of having to now disclose my disability. Well, not, not having the choice to disclose my disability anymore and kind of having to come to terms with that. And even before, um, my wheelchair, just once my Ehlers-Danlos started affecting, you know, organs, I was starting to having surgeries and kind of having to face head on. Okay, wait, no, this is not just an elevator tagline that I can kind of throw in as a, hey, you know, nice to meet you. Here are three cool things about me. I have this weird genetic anomaly thing. You know, no, it's more of, okay, this is something that is going to affect every single aspect of my life for the rest of forever. I guess I should probably deal with that. Um, had no idea what I was doing and it had never needed to reach out for that kind of help. And, you know, doctors are great, but they're not the ones that were going to help me navigate that. So I, like a millennial, turned to social media and suddenly found all these people with all kinds of different disabilities who um, were like, oh, absolutely. Here, let me tell you how this went for me. Let me tell you how I deal with people stopping me in the grocery store. Let me tell you how. And I learned so much from my community um, about just how to live my life and how to handle the constant you know, questions, the constant, do I want to disclose my disabilities to strangers? Does that bother me? Is that something I'm going to be okay with? Do I mind educating people on the street? Um, Do I, I might, you know, how am I going to present myself? Because this is no longer something that I can just kind of push down and not have to talk about. This is no longer something that I, I don't have to deal with as far as it comes to jobs or even relationships. This isn't something that I can, you know, hide on online dating when that was a thing. It was, it was a lot that I had to face head on. Um, I became a new wheelchair user and a single woman and lived on my own at the same time and got a new career all within like six months. Oh, and became Ms. Wheelchair Virginia all in six months <laughs> and kind of had to relearn who Ryan is as a person and like just had no idea what I was doing and was so thankful for people like Hannah who helped me many times 
especially getting paid as a disabled creator um, <laughs> and just showing me that, you know, hey, there are so many of us out there. And yes, they like a lot of able-bodied people do ask us stupid questions, but it's cool because they need, we, the, both communities need more people who are comfortable and, and okay with speaking out about, about my disability and okay with educating because there are a lot of people who aren't. And for those people and kind of to protect those people who are not quite as open and okay with their disability. And, you know, you never know asking someone, hey, what's wrong with you? You don't, don't know whose disability is caused by something horribly traumatic that maybe they're not ready to talk about. Maybe they haven't developed their elevator skill yet. Maybe you asking that question is going to give them horrible PTSD question, flashbacks that are going to send them on a spiral. We just don't know. And so that's why I kind of, because I had, I was led by these amazing disabled creators and these amazing other disability advocates who kind of taught me the ways and showed me, you know, that the world does need more of us that are willing to speak up and willing to educate and willing to say, okay, here's what my life is like. Um, here's maybe how you should handle other disabled humans in the, in, you know, in the field as I never leave nursing. <laughs> like, yeah, I need more days off. <laughs> yeah. So I just, community is, I, I cannot preach that enough. It has helped me more than anything. Um, in my own journey through it, you're not alone. You're so far from it, even though some days it feels like it when you're, you know, you have a bad doctor's appointment, you're sitting in the car crying afterwards because, you know, they didn't listen or you just feel like this is the end of your rope. We have been there. Community is so important. And just realizing that you are not alone and that there are so many of us out there who uh, want to help and want to educate if you do feel yourself going through this transition and having trouble with it. Or um, what I get all the time is, am I disabled? Am I allowed to use that label for me? If you are asking that question, yes. <laughs> like, yeah. do, when do I need a mobility aid? If you are asking me that question, now. <laughs> this kind of thing. Absolutely. So kind of speaking of community, obviously with the, the community at large, um, you know, like you said, there's, there's so many like able-bodied folks who have no idea what they're doing <laughs> and we love them very much, but um, how, how can they be the friends, allies, family, just people at the grocery store, um, provide support to people with disabilities, particularly those new to their disabled identity, but you know, just their community at large. Absolutely. Um, I always like to say is, I'm never, ever, 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 ever in a million years going to be offended if somebody asked me if I need help, um, especially growing, growing up in the South. This is, that was the other thing is when, um, so my girlfriend is also disabled and she is from California. And so she was just so caught off guard by how often people stop and ask to help us in the state of Virginia. And I'm like, this isn't just because we're disabled. This would, it, it would not matter. Like, this is just how people are growing up in the South. And so I never had an issue with people asking me for help ever. And I always tell people, I said, you know, you offering to help me is never going to hurt my feelings. However, how you respond to me saying no is, you know, oh, absolutely. Oh, do you need help with your groceries? No, I'm good. All right. Have a nice day. End of conversation. <laughs> this does not have to be like, are you sure? 
are you really sure? Yeah, yes, sir. I'm a grown adult and I know what I need help with and what I don't. Please leave me alone. That's the encounters that, you know, are bothersome. No, am I going to be offended if somebody asks me what's wrong with me? No, I personally am not, but there are a lot of disabled people who are not okay with answering that question. So it's just something that I always say, just, unless it is brought up to you, don't, don't just go up to strangers and ask them what their medical history is. I'm not going to go up to a strange man on the street and say, hello, you look like someone who may have erectile dysfunction. Is that true for you? Don't ask <laughs> me questions like that on the side. It's just not, if you're not going to ask that to someone who's able-bodied on the street, don't do it to somebody with a visible disability. You don't uh, go up to guys and ask them that? No? I mean, sometimes I want to, but like, no. <laughs> Yeah, just, you know, that that is fine. But also educating yourself is never harmful. Google is a good is a good tool. There's a, so many disability advocacy resources. If you have questions, if you see somebody on the street and you're like, ah, do I ask them what's wrong with them? No. If you want to know more about what life is like living with a visible disability, social media exists for a reason. Turn to that. Don't ask strangers their medical history. Um, but also, we're just people. We're, we're just because I have wheels under my butt doesn't make me actually magic though sometimes I think it does but <laughs> just because you know if I if I'm somebody with a facial deformity or if something with limb difference you know we're still a person we're still a human being and deserve to be treated with the same amount of gumption and respect that you would treat any other human being I don't need to be talked to like I'm a child unless I am somebody who, you know, has a caretaker with me who advises you to speak to me that way. Otherwise, just talk to me like a human being. And, you know, if you run into an uncomfortable situation where the person isn't able to talk back, I promise you're the only person that feels uncomfortable. That is not at all something that bothers us even a little bit. It's just you making that effort and treating us like a normal person saying hi in the grocery store and not giving me like a 20 foot width of breadth because I, you know, apparently wheelchair use is contagious. No, just act like a normal person and we're all gonna get along just fine. <laughs> it, my favorite thing I love because my chair is so colorful. People stop me all the time and they're like, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but like your spokes are rainbow and they're so freaking cool. I'm like, heck yeah. I would not have put rainbow spokes in my wheelchair if I didn't want somebody to see them and say, those are freaking cool. I got layup wheels for a reason. Like <laughs> if I'm going to wear this thing, it's going to be bright and beautiful. I love working night shift because I wheel into the room and the whole room is disco ball from a wheelchair wheels. And my patient's I'll constantly just like, thank you for just being so open and for being so chill. I'm like, nah, I'm not just like, my wheelchair is cool. Wheelchairs and mobility aids and medical equipment can be very cool and can be very tricked out. And it is okay to comment on that and allowing kids to comment on that. It's my favorite, I love children running up to me. Her wheelchair is so cool, it lights up. Favorite thing. So like we are humans just like you. We just may get around a little differently, speak a little differently, live life a little differently, but otherwise we're still here. We may be a little cooler, but that's just personal things. <laughs> well, Ryan, this is one of my favorite interviews as of late. I, I am contractually not allowed to say it's my favorite interview because some of my coworkers would <laughs> sell me, but uh, we have had so much fun here today. If people want to 
keep the fun going and check you out on social media, where do they go? Absolutely. So my main location is uh, the world of Instagram. You can find me on there under chronically underscore rye. That's chronically underscore R-Y. Um, you can also find the Chronically Rye platform on pretty much any social media you can think of. I'm active on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, and Clubhouse. <laughs> so if you're interested in following me on any of those platforms, um, also Ryan Mason on LinkedIn, I share my stories on there as well. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to contact me on there. Uh, my messages in my inbox are always open. It might take me a little while to get to you, but I always respond. Um, and I was shaking her head because it takes me six months to answer my emails. I got a talent manager now to help with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, um, very active on social media and I, I love meeting new people and hearing people's new experiences. So feel free to reach out. I am a total open book. If you have any questions about disability, disability and sexuality, uh, disability and healthcare, or just, Hey, I really like your light up wheels. <laughs> that is the way to get to me. <laughs> Again, thank you so much for joining with us today. It has been an utter delight. Thank you guys for having me. This has been awesome. And now a DLCV highlight. Did you know that over the moment starts in October for CCC Plus members? CCC Plus is Virginia's Medicaid Managed Care Program for people with complex health and long-term care needs. CCC Plus includes six different managed care organizations called NCOs District. During open enrollment, you can switch to a different NCO for any reason. Visit www.cccplusva.com to learn about your open enrollment options. Want to stick with your current NCO but need help resolving problems with your care or services? Reach out to the state's CCC Plus advocates by calling 1-800- so thank you again, uh, Ryan Mason, Ms. Wheelchair Virginia, for uh, coming and talking to us. We are going to be back with the second part of our interview with Ryan next episode. Um, that's going to be a little bit more of a um, of a spicy content episode uh, where she's going to talk about her experiences as a um, sex educator and um, sex education for people with disabilities. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Rights Here, Rights Now, brought to you by the Disability Law Center of Virginia. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, basically wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. If you need assistance or want more information about DLCV and what we do, visit us online at dlcv.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Disability Law VA or Facebook at the Disability Law Center, and you can share us with your friends. Until next time, I'm Virginia Ferris. And I'm Ren Fazuski, and this has been Rights Here, Rights Now. <laughs>